Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Cariad Lloyd. Griefcast is a place to talk, share and laugh about the peculiar human process of death and grief. Each week I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast. Hey Griefsters, I hope you're having an okay week wherever you are. The sun is shining as I speak to you, which is definitely helping the mood. Thank you so much for your amazing comments. We are heading to the end of this series. This series has been quite epic. I didn't expect it to be so long, but it it was. Um, So uh, yeah, if you have been enjoying this series, please do rate, review and subscribe. I know we all ask you to do that, but it will really help me mean I can make another series after this one as well. So thank you. This week I am speaking to poet and writer... Kayo Chingonye. Kayo is a award-winning poet. He won the Dylan Thomas Prize and he has just recently published his second collection of poetry, A Blood Condition. It is a powerful social commentary on the HIV crisis in Zambia that explores grief, inheritance and joy. It's a fucking beautiful piece of writing. I don't, I mean, you're here in the chat as ever. What is it with me and poets? Like, I just, he's so, he's so eloquent and he's, the way he speaks about grief is incredibly thoughtful and the book is yeah exactly the same um it's some of it's more prose some of it's more poetry but if you have experienced a grief there will be poems in there that will really stick with you Um, and please do listen to the end as he does read one of his fantastic poems out at the end and in his wonderful voice is very very powerful kayo came to talk to me about um, a series of griefs that he'd been through his dad who died when he was six, his mum who passed away when he was 13 and also siblings as well that um, his mum lost and his experience of grieving as a teenager. So Kayo, who are we remembering today? Uh, A good few people, Um, Mm -hmm. principally my mum and dad. What um, were their names? That would be John and Chilufia, although my mum was known as Jasper most of her mm. life. So she's more more often known by that. So yeah, mostly my mum and dad, but then also my mum had stillborn twins later, whose names were Paddy and Natasha. Um, and then my mum and dad, they, they had a kid who I like saw and met, but don't remember. He was called Kenta. So all wow. of those people who kind of make up my... I guess my my family, my what would be my family unit, mm. my nuclear family unit. Yeah, I think about them a lot. I mean, that's an awful, awful lot of people, mm. and obviously, as you said, that you know, family unit around that every one person has, you know, all those immediate connections. Is there somebody you want to start with particularly? Totally uh, I think my mum is a good person. Yeah. Okay. So her name, you said she was known as Jasper. What was the other name? The proper name that you said? Chilufia. Chilufia, Chilufia, mm. that's beautiful. When did um, Jasper die, Chilufia? Uh, year 2000. 2000, wow. Mm. 
So my dad died in 1998, so mm. just before that. So yeah, I, I'm one of your poems in the book, which is a very, very beautiful book. Um, you were talking about Y2K mm. and that sort of thing. And that really struck me as someone who equally lost someone around that time mm. of how it can seem... I think sometimes, I, I don't know <clears throat> if you have this, it sort of like seems like yesterday and 21 years. Like mm. it's because it still has a lot of modern re- things that we can kind of connect to that are now quite still present in our life. It's not like the 70s. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, well, no one dresses like that anymore. It still seems quite near recent, but yeah. Um, so the year 2000. And what did um, Jasper die of? What happened? So both my parents died from complications of HIV. So my mum's death certificate says bronchopneumonia, which is a really common thing for people to die of who have HIV and it advances because eventually the body and its various systems shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, bronchopneumonia technically, but I guess complications of HIV is what she died of. How old were you when she died in 2000? I just turned 13. Oh, God. That's really young. <laughs> I always feel weird when people say that to me because I'm like, well, I didn't feel young. It just felt like when it happened. But um, mm. yeah, 13 is a, a formative age. And were you, were you living with her and your dad at the time or was, what was the situation where you were? No, my dad, my dad died much earlier. And so I was living with my mum. Basically, my mum and dad were kind of separated. And I say kind of because I'm not sure and I can't ask them. But my mum was was living and working in the UK. Um, She started off studying, I think, library and information sciences. And then she went into drug research later. So she was living and working in the UK. And I was in 2000, I was living with my mum. We had just moved, actually, to be a little bit closer to family. So we were living in Essex, which was, I was out of sorts there because we'd been living in South London before that. Mm. Um... And I thought of myself as a very uh, urbane and streetwise kid. And here we were in Essex <laughs> negotiating the, the, the politics of, of that place. Um, mm. So, yeah, it was, it was me and my mum in this, in this house in, um, in Harold Hill. Mm. So when, when did your dad die then, before your mum? Yeah, my dad died much earlier when I was six in 1993. Wow. And because of that, I guess my my remembrance of that is very fragmentary. And mm. there is a sadness which arises from not having known him, I suppose, from mm. remembering just a few things and remembering his funeral. And I guess in the grief tradition of that time, like people would see the body at the funeral. And so that's a very formative memory, like seeing his body and like making that separation between someone living and someone dead. But yeah, I don't remember it as keenly and I don't remember him as keenly as I did my mum. Like I got to really know my mum quite well and we were very similar. So you saw you saw the body at the funeral? Was it like yeah. an open casket situation? Mm. It's funny because everything I've read these days is that it's really good for kids to see the body. Like it's mm. very helpful. Literally the reason you just said is that you can separate it and you can somewhere in your brain goes, okay, I see that person's dead. Mm. Are you glad that you got to see your dad's body in that way? It's interesting. I'm not sure. I'm honestly not sure because that's mm. my, that's one of the lasting impressions I have of him. 
yeah. uh, which is unfortunate. But at the same time, it lends itself to more closure, as you as you mentioned. I refused to see my mum's body, for example, and there was the opportunity to do that. So, for me personally, it'll always be something that I'm conflicted about.、Um, mm. I think it was a powerful way to say goodbye, and、um, I think it was important that we did things that way. But yeah, there are times I'm not so sure whether that、mm. that that should be one of the impressions I have of my dad. But there was a communality around it, which held me at the time. So at the time, it didn't really feel sad in a way that I can recognise. The sadness came later when I reflected back. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I guess、uh, I've been writing a lot about grief myself, and I think so much of grief is、um, the, a conflict of things、mm. at the same time, wrestling. And I think that's really interesting because everything I've read has been very like, oh, children should see the body; it's so positive and it really helps. But I guess what they are talking about, like, it helps in the long run. <laughs>、mm. And so, like, as a kid, it's like, oh, great, thanks. Like, yeah, when I'm twenty-five, I'll appreciate that. But at the time, as you said, a formative is. It's hard when things burn in your memory. I mean, my dad had cancer, so you know he wasn't ill for very long, but he got very sick and looked awful.、Mm. And a lot, I'd say, like the ten to fifteen years after he died, like that's kind of all I could see was the sick person.、Mm. Like it just burned in my memory. And he had pancreatic cancer, but it spread to his liver, so he went yellow. So he was like this very like vivid visual thing to deal with, like a, a yellow person walking around, you know, with like、mm. yellow eyes in your house, and. Makes me sound like a cat, but you know what I mean. Like, <laughs>、um, and that really stayed with me, like for a long time. It took a long time to not replace, but allow like the earlier memories to come through. Yeah, of and、course. I guess like yeah, like what you're saying when you're six, like you haven't got a, a big bank of earlier memories to to、um, take from. I guess.、Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I I don't necessarily, but I think. My dad had such a like powerful sense of presence. Like he was、mm. huge. He was six foot six. Wow.、Um, <laughs> very like deep voice. Spoke quite slowly, and like so, like when he would play the game of like hoisting you up into the air, that's like seven or whatever <laughs> feet into the air. So <laughs> those kind of things I remember very strongly, and like yeah, yeah. The thing of being like held in that way by someone who's huge is like a really special thing, which like、mm. obviously I've not really experienced.、Um, <laughs> being, yeah, no, you know, I need to find like a like a large eight foot person to like. <laughs> to like just, come on, just give it a go. Just try. Yeah. Just try. See if you can lift me. <laughs> you might be able to.、Um, my husband is six foot four. So yeah. Like, I can appreciate six foot six is、so、very tall. Yeah, it's a it's a serious yeah it's a serious climb. Serious mass. <laughs> And what was that、um, decision? What you said you didn't want to see your mum's body. Did that I guess did that come directly from what happened with your dad? You just thought I don't want to see her like that. I think what you just intimated about your dad and the kind of the way that he shifted and how、mm. how that image kind of overtakes for some while with my mum. Her being ill was like a really big, big part of that time. A big,、mm. a big resonance of that time is her being ill. That's all I can remember because, in a sense, I was like her principal carer at some moments.
So, you know, like there's things like having bathed my mum and things like trying to get her to eat and keep food down. And yeah, she was really nauseous all the time. So like all of that stuff is is like a strong memory. And then she was just really like reducing down, you know, um, mm. becoming skinnier and skinnier and like really losing losing anything that we recognised as her like, you know, her previous like, appearance and how she was so like she was very different at that stage and she looked really ill so I guess I guess I didn't want to then go and see the conclusion of that in a sense mm. when she was in hospital I was really resistant to her like succumbing to the feeling of illness of that space because of like I don't know some hope I was holding out that some magical thing would happen and she would be back to being how she was um, mm. So I think that was part of it. There's like the kind of the kind of death I experienced with my dad, where I saw that he was sick, but didn't really understand it, and he didn't he did change, but I didn't notice the change as keenly. And then with my mum, I noticed the change on a day to day basis over a long period of time, and I just couldn't live with the finality of 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 watching someone deteriorate, for want of a better word. Yeah, it was too difficult at that time. It is something I sometimes regret because I think there's something spiritually important about being witnessed in all of the moments of your life and mm. your death is a moment of your life just like any of the others. And indeed, it might have been something really healthy or powerful for me to have that as well, to, to have some sense of closure or maybe even continuity is a better word. Because obviously at that moment she wasn't suffering anymore. It, it, it's something I tussle with. Should mm. I have gone or should I not have gone? And I still am undecided broadly. I think for the moment that I was in at that time, it was the right thing not to, not to go. And I mm. kind of knew that deep down. You put things so beautifully. That especially I think when you, something happens to you when you're younger, you can only make the decision you can make at that point. And you can only make the decision that your brain at that time can cope with. Mm, and that's course. quite hard as you get older, because then you're like, oh, I see, oh, that was happening. But it's so weird, grief, loss of these things as a teenager or you know, as a young person, because like I think you have an awareness, like you have an awareness of like, this is very sad or this is what this means. But you don't, I always describe it as like, I didn't have any vocabulary. That's how I felt. Like I just didn't have the language for what was happening. Mm. So you have to... Yeah, protect yourself, make the right decisions for all that you can cope with at that time. And I think the way you described it, I think that makes perfect sense to me that you didn't want to see the conclusion of that deterioration after having nursed her and cared for her for so long. That's a really, yeah, that's like the end of a book you don't want to finish, isn't it? It's like you don't want to get there kind of mm. thing. So like I can understand as a child being aware of it, but going, you know what, like I've got so much to deal with. Maybe that's just what uh, something I don't need right now. But yeah, I think mm. I think the tussle is a great word as well, because so much for what I've been thinking about lately about grief is we're so desperate to like pin it down. Mm. Like this is how I felt, and that's it. It's done, and I can finish thinking about it. And it's like it just doesn't work like that. You constantly <laughs> review things and constantly go, oh, well, maybe I was wrong about that, or maybe I didn't think that, or maybe that's you know, it's it's never finished. It's never, mm. yeah, it's never a book that's done it's it's a painting that you just keep going back to yeah it's incredibly frustrating incredibly frustrating but also somehow 
sardonically humorous in a way. <laughs> like it's like <laughs> Yeah. It's like a, a really yeah, really terrible joke that keeps keeps coming back to you and you just have to chuckle. Um because you're like, Oh, you're here as well. That's that's great. <laughs> oh, I've got a job interview. Suddenly you've come up. What what is that about? <laughs> I like, yeah, it is a terrible, yeah, the terrible joke is a brilliant metaphor of like one you've heard that makes you groan. Mm. Like, oh, this guy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this guy again? Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I have two small children and my daughter's four ish, I think. And um, she really like loves terrible jokes and she'll like make you tell them again and again and again to the point like of surrealness where you're like, I can't even know why this joke is funny anymore. And yeah, it has that ring to it of like, oh god here we mm. go again did you go to your mum's funeral I did yeah I did I went and um not only did I go but also my family kind of asked me to suggest certain things like her favorite hymn and these kind of mm. things as well so it was interesting it was a weird sort of moment of having to grow up and take responsibility for something it's such an odd odd process like to mm. to to be one of the stewards of someone's funeral um so yeah i went i read a poem which i've i've forgotten what poem it was but i read i read something and then the rest is kind of a blur really um mm. i remember lots of my mum's friends from work and stuff coming up to me and family friends that we had and that kind of thing but apart from that it's a real yeah, the the day has no real colour in my memory. Mm. That's amazing that you read a poem mm. at 13. That's kind of incredible. Not one of mine, but it was something... <laughs> in fact, I'm not even certain I wrote poetry in a serious way back then. But um, mm. yeah, it was something that I felt was appropriate, but I can't remember what it was. It just felt like the right thing. But yeah, I guess I was always... I was always capable of like presenting something to an audience in that way. So like, mm. in a sense, that wasn't the most difficult part of the day. Yeah, I can relate to that as a performer. <laughs> like that's not the bit that's hard. It's the like walking off the stage afterwards and having to talk to people. That's like mm. far worse. <laughs> that's like, <laughs> oh my God, make a sentence. But standing there and everyone being like, well, now we're expecting you to do this. You're like, yeah, mm. exactly. Everything's very clear. You're expecting me to do that. I will do that. Yeah. Now it's done. Mm. There was no blur to that. Of like, oh, I don't know quite what's supposed to happen. Yeah. Um, what was it like? Because 13 is young, you know, it is young. And it's taken me years to accept 15 was young. So that's why I'm saying to you, I think 13 is young. Because I fought, I fought that so hard. I was like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's 15. It's fine. Um, like, did you just go back to school? Did you have to move from Essex or...? It was a weird situation where, like, when my mum was in hospital, I kind of lived in the house that we lived in, but my but my aunt and uncle lived nearby, and I ended up living with them after my mum died. Mm. They lived nearby, and, like, I think that had been part of my mum's plan in moving there. So I was kind of, like, living there on my own, effectively, but not on my own. They would come and check in on me and, like, whatever else. So I did that for a bit and then I moved in with my aunt and uncle and I was living with them and like effectively commuting to my old school, which was like an hour or so from them, a um, couple of buses. 
and then eventually eventually I, I moved schools and um and kind of left that part of Essex behind but yeah I mean the day my mum died I went to school as normal which was my choice at the time I'm not really sure why but like it's like an odd an odd thing like my aunt my aunt sat me down and told me I said I was gonna go to school all the same took the bus with my friends as usual and like I explained to them what had happened in the sort of like it's not a big deal kind of a way mm. that you do at that stage and like obviously they were really supportive within the capacity of children to be supportive yeah. which can actually be really expansive like they have mm. a really innate sense of care I think yeah so there was that and then I went into school and obviously I think my aunt had rung ahead and told them what was going on and like never had such like a such like a day of like teachers like caring for <laughs> me but yeah that that's what I remember the most they were like really really careful around me and care mm. caring of me that day and many of the days that followed actually although I don't remember them very strongly but I just remember like I needed that day to be as normal as possible even though it was mm. never gonna be so I went to school and I did my normal stuff back then I was big in well Obviously, I still am very big into music. Like, I write about it all the time. But, like, I was a band geek to an extent. I was singing with the swing band and, like, <laughs> lunchtimes I would go to the music rooms and, like, write songs and be with the pianists and instrumentalists and whatever. So I was just doing my normal stuff mm. and throwing myself into that for some while. And then out of all of that, I think writing emerged as something that would be central in my life but yeah, yeah I just really sort of carried on as if <laughs> as if everything was fine I think well you know what you were saying there like when something extraordinary happens to you and you're very young yeah the more things that can be normal the better and I've talked about it on the show before that um my GCSEs were like two weeks after my dad died and everyone was mm, like oh you know, do you do you want to take them yeah and I, mm. I was like yeah of course I do because how weird not to how weird that'd mm. be so weird that would mean something was wrong and mm. yeah I was lucky I didn't have to go to school because it was we were on study leave so I was kind of grateful I didn't have to like I could like mooch <laughs> mm. like put my pajamas on and stuff that was what and it felt like a summer holiday you know that's what I sort of felt it reminded me of that of like oh yeah it's just holiday nothing's happening and but say so I completely understand that need for getting the bus seeing the same people because this huge thing huge thing and I guess as you said it was just you and your mum living together so that is your world that has just stopped that is like a lot to process at, at 13 mm. Yeah. Did you understand what she had died of? Not at that point. Mm. Um, that came later. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember how much later. Maybe, maybe even as many as five or six years. No, I just knew she was really ill, but I didn't know anything beyond that. And I think it became more and more difficult for my aunt and uncle to talk to me about it because for the first like two years or so, I was like really shut down about. Mm. Like I didn't, I don't think I mentioned my my mum intentionally for a long time. So it was hard for my family to know like where to start. Mm. And like, 
after some while of trying to pretend everything was okay, the emotion of it hit me and I was really depressed for some, for a long time. So I think for a time it probably was the feeling of not wanting to add even more for me to like compute. Mm. Um, but yeah, later, later is when I found out about all of the context and stuff. There's also the thing of like trying to keep things normal was also like not asking. I never asked. Mm. It didn't feel important at that time. And in a way, it still doesn't. Like, yeah, yeah. it feels sort of like arbitrary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. Because what matters is she's died. Like, that's mm. the fundamental thing you're dealing with. So, yeah. Yeah. That's not your issue, is it? When you're no. that age, you're like, yeah, that doesn't really bother me. What bothers me is they're not here. Yeah. And I think the not asking, I definitely did loads of not asking because I just thought the answer I don't want to hear the answer mm. so I just I'm alright thanks <laughs> like and if you if I sort of sensed a conversation coming up of like maybe this is more when he was ill of like what you know what's going to happen I just would sort of like leave the room or not really listen and, mm. and I didn't really realise how blinkered I was I was really good at sort of like shutting down mm. the outside bit everything was happening around which my I have an older brother who was much better at you know, he was much more, obviously he was four years older, so he was much more aware of like, okay, this is bad, which mm. I was sort of in this like, la, la, la. <laughs> I think it's kind of fine. And I still live in that place. Do you find that like, if you've sort of, somebody who can not ask, yeah. do you ever find yourself like easy to go back there? It's really interesting. I think I pride myself on being somebody who can, you know, listen to, mm. to somebody else and like what they're going through. But I'm not, somebody necessarily who asks explicitly mm. um, if the conversation tends in that direction then I can nurture that but I'm not someone who says okay this big thing has happened how are you feeling about that like if I <laughs> if I hang out with somebody I'm like if they want to bring it up we'll talk about it and that's perfectly mm. fine but if they don't then we won't and like for me as well that's basically my approach like it's very rare that I want to bring it up um, mm. Like volunteering information is one of the like real stoppages <laughs> in my psyche. Like it's something I've had to learn. Like, uh, yeah, to not wait until somebody asks because sometimes people don't know how to ask. And then also people don't know that they need to as well, mm. especially if you're not demonstrative. People might assume, like if you're doing the whole carry on as normal thing, a certain proportion of people are going to believe that that's what's going on because it's much easier to be like, yeah, this person's saying they're fine. Okay, they must be fine, you know? Yeah. It's very, like, there's a rare subset of people that are like, yeah, you're saying things are fine, but, like, I'm not getting that from all of you, so, like, <laughs> what's going on? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm really content to to carry on as normal, but I think I'm better now having... Having been through like therapy for some while and just grown generally, I'm better now at saying actually this thing is happening and it's hard. But yeah, it's still tricky. And some days I'm just not, I'm not with that at all. <laughs> mm. And it's like the furthest thing from what I want to do to, yeah, to volunteer this thing. Which is where I think like we were both talking about performance and I wonder if that's where performance comes in, like because it's so formalized and scripted like you can put all of that mm. into whatever it is that you're delivering and like you don't have to 
say it, but some some part of you will reflect it. I find that really powerful. Like sometimes I come out of a performance and I'm like, damn, I really processed some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> nobody nobody else knows, but that was really yeah. <laughs> that was really spiritual for me. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. Well, I think sometimes performance always has that, yeah, that therapeutic therapy effect in... For only speaking for myself, is that I'm I find it difficult to let go of like to not be in control. <laughs> really, Cariad? Yes. And um and so for me, like I felt similar to you, like volunteering that information felt like um hot coals. Mm. It was like, oh, like am I am I strong enough to tell you today? Like if you do the wrong thing, am I gonna collapse? So performing gives you this fake control like you said that you can reflect it or you can talk about it in a way that you're in control of and in a way that it can be hidden you know people could not even know what you're talking about and what you're discussing and so it gives you this yeah an outlet as you know many people describe it as where you can process a little bit but yeah I definitely I've got so much better at volunteering I mean obviously I've had to to do a podcast (laughs) I talk about it weekly but um again that's still control like I still I decide like Mm. how much we talk about him and I decide I'm mainly talking to someone else and that took me a long time and therapy to um Mm. see what I was doing with that and and with the therapy this again is only what I've read often if you're a teenage griever it takes a long time to get to therapy because you're sort of dealing with this like you know you have to sort of deal with grief and be a teenager and that's kind of a mess Mm. and in your 20s you're like hang on a minute I wonder what just happened Mm. and then normally you get to 30 that's the pattern and you're like whoa I see this is because of that Mm. like did it take you a long time to get to therapy it did yeah it took till it took till my mid or late 20s for it to Mm. be like a thing that registered in my in my world as like something that might be worthwhile to do and then yeah I had the kind of NHS therapy, which is obviously like limited in its scope. But I had someone who was really good. Mm. And that that really showed me that it, it might be a process that I could continue. I had to stop working with them and like find the right person after that. But yeah, it took a long time. And it's only in my kind of, 
yeah, since I got into my 30s that it's been like a thing I think of as like a a regular thing, like doing the laundry, like tidying the house, <laughs> like, I don't know, like clipping your nails, you know, like it's really like banal and not <laughs> so interesting. But if you don't do it, like, mm. I mean, you know, some people carry off the whole long nail business, but <laughs> I'm stretching, stretching this metaphor. I like it I like it (laughs) (laughs) I know what you mean it's yeah it's like it's not glamorous I think sometimes we think therapy is like oh you go and you talk about yourself Mm. and cry and scream and I think you do for like the first three weeks Mm. I definitely felt like I bawled my eyes out for three weeks Mm. I was like oh my god I'm here and then it just turned into like a very like you said kind of banal Mm. like literally going through boxes in your head Uh, and being like oh what's in here yeah (laughs) what have I put in here yeah that's a really good analogy I feel like going through <laughs> going through the attic <laughs> looking yeah, in the like, loft <laughs> all this stuff that you're like did I need what is this do I need oh I don't need that that's that's rubbish oh here's the mess here's the crap at the back of the attic oh no and <laughs> you find it you're like oh. and then your therapist I they're so gleeful when you find a good box oh, like, for goodness sake <laughs> Some, sometimes like I don't actually <laughs> hate him but sometimes I'm like, <laughs> I'm just like you, smug bastard. Like, <laughs> just like, how did you? Yeah. How did you know? And like, yeah, it's really funny because like, a good therapist has a way of like, calling you on your nonsense and also mm. like, like stepping away and just hold, <laughs> just holding a reflective surface like in front yeah. of their face so you can see yourself is like. It's awful, really, to be honest. Like, it's it's not at all fun. It's incredibly, like, obviously, like, banal to be going through the same stuff and unable to cast mm. it off. But, like, it's such an important thing to do, like, you know, because, yeah, as we both gestured, like, especially if you have one of these, like, explosive experiences, like, it's very, it's very easy to pretend it's not happened. Mm and like bury it somewhere in your body and you have to excavate. Yeah, and especially as a kid, you know, when you're young, it's easy because that's what sort of everyone wants you to kind of be okay. And so you sort of learn how to like do the face that everyone likes and, and also you want to be okay. You you don't want to feel like this. This is horrible. So it becomes a very comfortable place to be. Mm. And I think what you said, that reflective thing is so funny because you're so annoyed at them for holding up the mirror. Like, how fucking dare they? And then you see, oh, but it's me. All they're showing me is me. Like, I'm the one doing all this stuff. They're just being like, did you know you were doing that? You're like, mm. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I have, I've actually, she just, we just finished. Um, I mean, you know, this chunk of therapy. And um, I'm sure I'll be back. And she said, um, oh yeah, like what I found really weird was like, you can talk about so many other things, so many other things. And then I would always laugh because I'd be like, oh, about my dad dying, isn't it? (laughs) This stuff that you're convinced. No, this isn't. This isn't about, this is genuinely not about, this is something Mm. else actually. It's about, yeah, this is about me and my career or my friends. And then you're like, oh, it's about my dad dying. That's why that happened. Mm. And I sort of think, isn't it funny that you just keep coming back to the same? But of course you do. Like you said, explosive is a really good word. It's this mm. huge thing that happened to you when you didn't entirely understand what was happening. Like, how can you walk away from that? Mm. It, it burns you in a way and forms you into a, a different shape than you would have been. Yeah, I feel like I feel like a therapist helps you find the black box recorder. 
of like mm-hmm. the yes because like you lose entirely the sense of the particular moment that was so difficult because I think mm. yeah the thing about lots of traumas is that your body protects you from them mm. it finds a way to protect you either in the moment or afterwards or whatever like whether you dissociate or yeah whatever protection your body presents and I think yeah with someone with someone physically not being there anymore the protection is really flimsy (laughs) yeah because you're always being met with this like alternate (laughs) reality (laughs) so you're like everything's fine but then some other thing is like no but that person's gone they're entirely gone you can't call them you know it's really intense and very trying to this like Mm. system of protection which is about denying the thing you just can't you can't if you know if you can go to a cemetery somewhere with someone's name printed in their picture and that's where they are now you can't deny it um Mm. you could try (laughs) (laughs) i think you can still yeah god i think it's a mate like you said the way the brain and the body will protect you Mm. And it's so, it's it, what I found frustrating. It's so helpful. Like the body's like this really over helpful person. Like it's really useful, you know, like especially when you're you're young and you need to like get on the bus and see your friends and go to school and your body's like, don't worry, we got this. Like mm. we totally got this. But it just keeps doing it. <laughs> you're like, you have to stop now. But your body's like, no, 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 don't worry. We push those thoughts away. Mm. We do something else. Like we got it, we got it. We This is how it works. And it's so, yeah, I think again, therapy is, the only way I was able to like stand back for myself and observe was like, oh, I see that's what I'm doing. Whereas for years I had no idea because it's your body. So you just think, well, that's just me. That's just how I work. Mm. That's how I think about things. You can't separate yourself. And that's that's all that therapy I gave me. Obviously it's a very personal experience and, mm. you know, it is, it is difficult to access. I had the same as you actually. I got lucky on the NHS mm. and found someone who was brilliant. But I know, but I waited a long time oh, yeah. to get that person. Oh yeah. But I don't know if you had this. They were like, "Oh, it's a two-year wait," and I was like, "I've been waiting twenty years to talk about it." I was like, "It's absolutely fine." Mm. I was like, "I'll just carry on waiting." Like, it is really not a bother. But obviously, for other people with mental health issues, it can be. You know, you need urgent help, so it, it is tricky. Yeah. But it is out there. There is stuff out there. Yeah, I feel like yeah, it's. It's not fit for purpose, but there Mm. is something. Since there is something, like I, yeah, I'd always encourage people to at least try it. It does not work for everybody. But for me, I was really resistant, really resistant. And it, yeah, it took trying it several times. um, Mm, Same. For it to properly stick. And it is difficult, can be really expensive, but like it is, Mm. there are points of entry. Um, can I ask, you said about the the twins. Mm. Was it Natasha and... And Paddy. Paddy, yeah, Paddy. <laughs> yeah. And was that something... So that was... They were stillborn. Mm. And did your mum talk about that a lot then? Is that how you were sort of aware of that? Do you know what? No, she didn't. Oh, wow. It's really, um, it's really weird because, uh, in fact, before them, my mum had Kenta, who was my little brother... Mm. Little brother born in Zambia when we lived there and I was two when he was born and he died not long after being born from jaundice, which is like Mm. a really livable condition in the West. But in Zambia at that time, it wasn't. So I have like a 
I think I have one picture of him where, like, you can see the yellow of jaundice in his skin.、Mm. So I feel very, like, sad to look at that. But at the same time, I feel this warmth. And apparently, we got on really well. I loved him a lot, apparently. Tried to,、um, tried to feed him chicken. <laughs> uh, Classic toddler move. Yeah, I was like,、helpful. I like chicken. You must also like chicken. <laughs>、um, and Paddy and Natasha are actually the kids that my mum had with my kind of stepdad.、Um, mm. This was her partner after being with my dad, who she met in Newcastle, where I first went to live with her in the UK. So they lived together, they were together for some while, and then they broke up. But.、Um, In the time we were living in Newcastle, she got pregnant、uh, with twins and was really like, you know, like eight months pregnant or, you know, pretty、mm. close.、Um, yeah. She didn't talk about it very much, but I remember she talked about like, she talked about being able to hold them and see them and what they were like and stuff. But it was such a weird thing of like, there she goes off to the hospital with like a massive. Belly and like、mm. me with the excitement of like the the twins coming, and then it it was just a really muted coming back. And like, I have、mm. a poem about it in the in the collection, which is called、yeah. 13 Napier Street, which was our address then. And like, obviously, I've taken the backstory almost entirely out of that poem, but the the poem is just my erstwhile stepdad coming in through the door and like his. His carrying of that news and that feeling, basically, and like the mutedness that came into the house as a consequence of that time. Did my mum talk about it? I think once or twice, yeah. A thing she mentioned is that, like, one of the twins was really like his dad. Like,、hmm. he, he has this, like, athletic kind of bow legged thing going on, you know, where someone's. Someone's legs are so muscular that, like,、oh, <laughs> there's, yeah, a yeah, of, yeah. there's a kind of bend to them under the muscle、yeah. or something. But basically, like, as a baby, he had that. And, like, you know, where people project forwards into a baby's life that they'll be sporty or whatever.、Mm. There, was, there was that kind of conversation. And it was really quite sweet. And I feel a lot of warmth for those siblings, you know, that never, we never made it to each other. I feel a lot of warmth for them. I really like brothering people and taking them aside and giving advice and all of these kind of like, yeah, I, you know, I've experienced early bereavement. I'm wise. I've got things I can <laughs> tell you. Some, some part of me really likes transforming pain into something useful in that way and being useful、mm. to people. So, so, like, there's some part of me that aches to be a big brother in that way. But I'm from Zambia and so there's no. Separation between there's no separation between siblings and cousins, so all of my cousins'、mm-hmm. children are my nieces and nephews, and all of my cousins are my siblings. And so, like, I have a lot of people to practice brothering on、uh, effectively or uncling, which is an even deeper joy.、Um, <laughs> The next level of big brothering is uncling, <laughs> exactly. Exactly, <laughs> it's the stage you get to. It's uh, it's lovely, it's lovely, yeah. You can, Your、uh, poor mum, that is a lot. Yeah. That's a lot she went through. Yeah, I feel, I feel increasingly saddened by like, the difficulty of her life and、mm. the lack of resources to deal with that. Because I remember certain moments where things kind of reached a breaking point, and at the time I couldn't understand why. But like, looking back now, I can see, God, this, this woman went through. 
you know, the loss of a husband and like separation from him, moving to a different country, like those are enough already. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she also had me relatively young as well, which is its own thing. So, yeah, like she had an incredibly difficult life and yeah, really difficult circumstances that she moved through. And I feel, I feel part of what I'm still here to do is like heal from that intergenerationally mm. and like let, let that pain go somehow, let it escape. I think you're a bit amazing, sorry. <laughs> I just think like, yeah, what your mum went through, that is, that is fucking hard, Jesus Christ. And also at that time, you know, I know from what I, so I've been doing this podcast for like five years. Mm. And even in that time, like grief is now, like people are so comfortable talking about it. Like it's like out there, it's, it's a new thing that we, <clears throat> you know, like mental health. It's like, oh, we can all talk about how exciting. Mm. But yeah, you do think about, especially stuff with baby loss, like it's so much more in the public eye. People are so much more happy. But I, I remember a time when it was just, yeah, it was not discussed. Mm. And you said that, I think that word you use, muted, like that is just so, yeah, I can really, I can, you're making me able to feel that feeling in the house of like not, just things not being able to, yeah, I don't know, like you said, for that pain to be healed, for there to be healing and a space for that and the resources for that, it's, my mind boggles sometimes at, how far we've come and how far we have to go yeah you know like it's like you think wow gosh like isn't it we do live in an amazing time there are all these resources you know and we can sit here talking about this and we can talk about our therapy and as you said but it's like thing of things not being fit for purpose but something being there but that's something still not we can't sit back and go well it's done great mm. brilliant <laughs> oh great hooray um when did you start writing about like this pain specifically because obviously the the book a blood condition touches on other things but it is a lot about there's some incredible poems about grief on there mm. I think it's really interesting before I was a writer in like the formalized sense of publishing mm. my work and all that kind of stuff I wrote things throughout school and this is like starting in primary school and in primary school like my writing was different because like the life experiences I'd had at that point were like my dad had died but I had no real purchase on that subject mm. it was just a a fact of life that had happened and I hadn't really looked into it too deeply. And then later when my mum died, I think writing became an avenue for that kind of exploration. And I remember um, around when I was 13, 14, in the school I was going to, I had, I had an English teacher. I think she was from Ireland, Mrs. Bass. Thank you, by the way, if you're listening to this. Um, <laughs> she asked us to write like a sort of piece of memoir about something. Mm. And I wrote about this episode in the hospital when my mum had been like, effectively like saying goodbye in a way and how I refused that goodbye. I was like, no, I'm not gonna allow, allow this to happen. And I went to like, I left her bedside and went to the recreation room where like people were watching TV and like, you know, lots of them dying not in a good place um and I went I went there and I think my mum got one of the nurses to come and get me and then I came back but like that was the last time I saw my mum so like we ended on like a we ended in a way I would 
looking back now, have preferred we didn't, which is with my mm. refusal. She was trying to say to me, look, I, I can't continue. Like, I'm at my end here. Uh, and she wanted me to be at peace with that and to let her go. And I couldn't. I couldn't. I was... I needed her too much at that time. Like, I couldn't let her go. And so I was really, like, angry, sad, all, all sorts of emotions. But I wrote this piece, which was kind of about that. And oddly, like, in that moment, there was a slippage where my mum started to speak in my first language and not English. Like, that moment needed needed for us to communicate in this primary way. Um, mm. So she was speaking to me in Bemba, which was my first language, one of the main languages in Zambia. And I was like, why are you speaking to me in this way? Like, what's going on? Why have you suddenly, why, is, why have things become so formal? We were just chatting, what's going on? And like some, some way that this English teacher talked to us or framed writing for us made me think that it was okay to write about that just in the, in, in the course of my English lesson. And so I wrote this piece and then like, not only did she encourage us to write these things, but then like afterwards she took seriously what I'd written and like not pathologizing it, but like taking it seriously. Like I was going through something. She like contacted my aunt and uncle and my, my aunt came into school and the three of us just like talked about it. Not like I was in trouble, but like you've written this. This is something that's inside you. You're not obviously talking to someone about it. Let's the three of us talk about this and like, not even to put anything in place, but just to make it explicit and to say this is a thing that's happening. It was really powerful. And it was my first like sense that writing could be that, could hold uh, sensation and emotion in that way that could make it possible to have certain conversations. And that's what the writing that goes into a blood condition and before it, my previous collection, Kumakanda, that's what the writing is about really like how can we how can we create a situation whereby we can have these conversations how can I write something that frames a question sufficiently that we can talk afterwards so yeah that that whole process really in its infancy started when I was about 13 14 and first wrestling with like the new state of affairs, like the new shape of my life. Yeah, you know, it takes, sometimes it takes like one person or several people just taking seriously something that you've written for you to then be like, okay, I'll write something else then. And then you just keep going. And for me, that's how it's been. Like one person took me seriously at that stage, then later someone else took me seriously and I just kept going. I think the two poetry books I've published so far are really on that same pathway, but possibly the next work of poetry that I publish might be a bit different. Um, yeah, I'm working on a memoir, which is very... <laughs> it's like all of this stuff wrapped up into one thing, but I kind of feel like that might be the final piece. And after that, I might not write about grief so much, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll oh, see yeah I understand <laughs> oh my god well I feel you for that because obviously I've been doing the podcast so long and I'm writing a book about grief myself mm. based on things I've learned from the podcast and I said to my friend the other day 
because you know I, I was a comedian before this <laughs> and I said the next thing I do is going to be so stupid like the most stupidest funniest nothing to do with death ever and she was like really and I was like yeah maybe not (laughs) but you do I know that feeling you're like oh god it'd be nice to just sit down and not be like so deaf (laughs) rather than like just be like oh here's some absolute rubbish that doesn't have any meaning to it at all Mm. well one what an incredible woman that teacher was to just take you seriously at that moment Mm. like the power that tiny moments can just change like you said and then the next next person took you seriously like just the path that can just and obviously you're the one doing that that is all you but just the way that some people can just nudge you on a way mm. down a little road is so wonderful that we have that power to help to help each other and i really i found what you said about your mom really moving and interesting because my dad refused to talk about it so it was like the opposite. Mm. Like me and my mum were trying to get my dad to like, you're dying. And he was like, right, next week we're going to do this, book a plane. We need to, <laughs> like, he was like on it. Like mm. we're going to do, and me and my mum were just, oh, and that was like my last proper conversation with him was a row because he just wouldn't admit he was dying. Mm. And so he got really grumpy and I got really shitty because I was a teenager. And it took a long time for me to kind of step back and see those two people and see fair enough you know he was 44 he didn't want to be dying Mm. like that was his way of dealing with it that was my way of dealing with it but it's so hard when you're like you said that phrase you use like we're just chatting why does it have to like you just don't want it Mm. you just don't want to hear it and it's it's that's no one's fault but then you're left with all the emotions of of those conversations and not and not able to go back and you know have a chat again Mm. and be like oh hey i thought about it now sorry about that <laughs> oh that was crazy right like i was all over the shop um it's very um i don't know what you've taken from it all i've taken is like i've kind of had to forgive him mm. for not being able to talk about it and kind of forgive myself mm. for not you know e- equally navigating it really badly like do you feel like you've reached a place of forgiving yourself for what happened and yeah i think I think one of the spaces of healing has been to connect some of the things that happened to to my socialization as a man and like mm. certain like it strikes me as a very like stereotypically masculine thing to refuse mortality in that way <laughs> like yeah yeah <clears throat> like um <laughs> one of my un- one of my uncles got injured somehow and one of and has one of those like golf balls that 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 like are produced by like a blow to the head on his head oh yeah, yeah as yeah. we speak but like oh. he doesn't talk about it <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's just there <laughs> and like that strikes me as the most apposite metaphor for like for like masculinity and its relationship to like anything which has to do with weakness or like mm. fallibility or like death impermanence I really had to forgive myself and to learn about myself that I was resistant to that acceptance and the acceptance has Mm. taken a long time to come and it's taken a long time to allow myself the vulnerability to say, you know, my, my anger or my feeling at that time was because I needed my mother so much and she was leaving. Um, Mm. It wasn't something she chose, but like it was inevitable at that moment, like we reached a critical mass and like yeah to to allow yourself to feel the pain of something like that is a really powerful gesture of self-compassion mm. 
to yeah almost to take yourself seriously and say this was this was a big deal. Mm. <laughs> it's okay that it was a big deal. It might not be a big deal to anybody else in exactly the same way, but it was a big deal to you. It's taken me a long time to be like, yeah, this was, wow, that was a big deal. Um, yeah. So I think that's the that's the forgiveness I offer myself is to to say, ah, oh, no, it, it wasn't like it wasn't nothing. Uh, it wasn't a small thing. It wasn't okay. Uh, it was a big deal. Oh, Kaya, I think, yeah, you're so eloquent. <laughs> you're so eloquent where you're putting it, and like that is exactly what I had to do with my therapy. Is like I just for so long was like, yeah, you know, it happened. <laughs> Stuff happens, right? Mm. People die. <laughs> oh well, and you know, like one week she she just finally made me admit, like, yeah, it was a big deal. It was kind of that was that was big, and like you said, you beat yourself up of like. Oh, other people wouldn't be sad. Other people would be fine. Like, why am I so pathetic? And like, and then you're just like, yeah, it was. But for you, it was. And there's no, I think once you get past that, like sort of just go, well, but it was for you. End of discussion. Hmm. We don't need to work out why it was big for you or why you're so sad. You just are. Oh, like, let's just start there. Hmm. And that act of self-compassion that you're describing, I think is just, yeah, really helpful. And just, and that's why I now admit I was young. Because hmm. for so long I was like, 15's not young. People lose their parents at one, hmm. you know? 15, I had 15 years, great, very lucky, very <laughs> lucky. And I'm like, 15's young, it's young, 13's young. Like, we were young when these things happened. Yeah. And it's a lot to deal with. You say it's a big deal. I just think the way you are talking about it is so beautiful and so eloquent. And I know will be so helpful to people to have I was talking to um, Michael Rosen mm. a few weeks ago and he was describing, you know, writing about grief and stuff and he used such a nice phrase which is like, writers bring the news. Mm. Like, we, we, that's what we do, we bring the news and I just think the way you're talking about it is like, yeah, this is, this is how I dealt with it, this is how it happened, I think it will be so helpful. Thank you so much for talking to oh. me, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. Before you go, I want to ask something slightly cheeky, if you would read one of your poems. Yeah, it's totally fine to read something. So this is called Guys and St. Thomases. When I'm here in a particular character of mind, any woman of a certain height, hair plaited neat to meet the working day, becomes my mother. In that year of early mornings, she worked at GDRU, close to this stretch of the river, close to Hayes Galleria, the aquarium that is still here, though she is not, to walk with me as we scrutinize tropical fish laughing in the uncomplicated manner that comes of understanding and after a bankside stroll a cart proprietor advertises wares varieties of ice cream it's 1999 my last summer as native this side of the river where the water brings pilgrims in search of a cure for long hours bad coffee friends always catching up rarely giving conversation its due. How can I set down the passage of time? Who knew a face becomes less and less distinct the longer it no longer exists? How to lift this mist from my eyes so that I might see this concrete and glass for what it is and stop writing my mother into it, that I might let her walk away becoming smaller and smaller until she disappears.
thank you. That was really nice to hear you read it. Ah, you're welcome. Really nice, thank you. Kaya, thank you so much. I really, honestly, it's been so amazing to talk to you and thank you for remembering John and Jasper and Paddy and Natasha and Kenta. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Kaya's book is available to buy now. It's A Blood Condition is the name of it. It's published by Chateau and Windus. It is exceptionally beautiful. I thoroughly recommend you buy it. You can also follow him on Twitter at Kayo Chingonye. That's K-A-Y-O-C-H-I-N-G-O-N-Y-I. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. The show is recorded remotely from, I think, both our living rooms. It was edited by Kate Holland and the music was provided by The Glue Ensemble. And remember, you are not alone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.